Applications for the Techstars Tech Central Sydney Accelerator Class of 2024 are closing on the 22nd of May. I'm Kirsten Hunter, the Managing Director of Techstars Sydney, and I'm looking for diverse and unstoppable founders who are using technology to solve the world's biggest problems to join this Accelerator cohort. The 12 successful businesses will get access to our 13-week mentor-driven accelerator, $120,000 US investment, and access to the Techstars network for life. Head to our Accelerator webpage to learn more and to apply. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists, to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell the story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. Hi, my name's Alan Jones, and I'm the guest host for today's episode of Welcome to Day One. Can you please introduce yourself, Megan? Yes, hello. My name's Dr. Megan Sebin. I'm the program manager for CSIRO's Kickstart program. Let's go to where your career first began, Uh, because you're not a, a software or a hardware engineer, are you? Where did your career first begin? Yeah, so my background is in environmental sciences. I have a PhD in hydrogeology, specifically in groundwater modelling. So I was building computer models of groundwater systems to look at all sorts of environmental, in particular contaminant issues in coastal environments. So I started out my career in academic research and then moved into a consulting role from there. So very much focused on groundwater environmental ecosystems and those sorts sorts of challenges. Yeah, so that's where I started. I then moved into education for a little while. So I first joined CSIRO in 2017 and was one of the program officers for their STEM professionals in schools program which I was already a scientist volunteering and I worked with them for about a year and a half and that's this incredible opportunity came up to go back more to the research roots and get involved with startups through the CSIRO Kickstart program of which I'm now the program manager for. I just want to go back to that geo and hydrology background just for a second if we can. How much of that was very complicated maths and how much of it was putting your muddy boots on again and going out to the field to to measure something. So it started out a lot of muddy boots, actually. I was working on a, the region near the border of Victoria and South Australia, the Piccaninny Ponds, which are quite a famous cave diving site, actually. And there's a lot of dairy farms in the area and reclaimed land, trying to put it back into its original swamp ecosystem. So I was doing field work out there. And what I 
aimed to do from that was then to model the system, but it turns out that the mathematics and our understanding of building computer models in these really complex geological environments, you've got all these caves and karst systems and fractures. I was basically trying to solve too many problems at once. So we scaled down and scaled down. And by the time I actually did my, I did my thesis by publication, that the modeling studies I were publishing were 2D models with tiny little fractures, hairline fractures in to understand the impacts of these features on how, let's say, the contaminants actually seawater coming in, how that's then going to spread that through these freshwater ecosystems. As is the case, I think, in a lot of situations, you start out with the big picture, but actually we really needed to narrow down and get to some key understanding on some very uh, small aspects first. But as time has passed, people have taken some of the outcomes of the work I did in that theoretical sense and have gone and actually explored this out in the real world. So maybe a five or 10 year delay on doing the things that I wanted to do in my PhD initially, but it all contributes to our understanding of the science, which is the main thing. Perhaps you're a little bit too early to market, as we say in tech startups. Yeah, that's it. I needed to, you know, scale it back a little bit initially. <laughs> I, I can envision, though, you know, a cloud of semi-autonomous drones, you know, with, with sensors there, sending them off down into the caves to go and survey the whole thing to the millimetre level. I'm sure that's coming any day soon. Any day soon. And what, what led you into, into the education side of science, Megan? After working in consulting, it, consulting probably didn't really fit for me as a career choice. I was not quite satisfied with the work I was doing. It was quite opportunistic. I was enjoying being part of the program as a volunteer, but then when they were looking for someone to actually help run the program, I thought this would be a good opportunity to explore something new and have a go at, at something else. And the role was across Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. So I was really looking forward to getting to learn more about the education sector, how science is a part of that, how people like myself maybe can help contribute to the type of science education that, that happens in schools and supporting teachers who are already having to do a monumentous amount of work. I, I put my hand up for the role and was lucky to get it. And yeah, it was a chance to work more in building relationships. And it certainly ties into the work I'm doing now, but from a different perspective. So I was helping to build relationships between teachers and schools and um, scientists, engineers, uh, anyone with a, a STEM-related career. So not necessarily working as a scientist, but certainly lots of careers require knowledge of science, tech, engineering, math. So we wanted to connect people working out in industry with teachers to be able to bring some of those contextual aspects into the classroom and quite early on. And so in me, in my case, I like to bring that entrepreneurial side of science into the classrooms as well and get this kind of uh, little pitch events and things like this happening in the classrooms because there's this other aspect to science and where that leads that's not necessarily understood or considered in a classroom environment. So that was a really good opportunity to take up and I learned a lot about the, the relationship building experience from that. I was listening to uh, an earlier episode of, of Welcome to Day One this morning on, on my run and uh, the uh, person being interviewed was, was Matt Barry, the founder and CEO of, of Freelancer.com and uh, 
he uh, was, was talking about when he went through at school, he literally didn't know what an engineer was until the final career day, you know, before he graduated from high school. And that just happened to be a guy who worked as an engineer coming to the school. And he phrased that, you know, the, the engineer said, what engineers do is they solve problems through applying science, you know, solving the world's problems with science. And that set the young Matt Barry's uh, brain afire. And he decided that was the career path for him. So I have huge respect for the people who do that as, as volunteers or professionals. It makes a huge difference. I like that way of thinking because we sometimes see science as being a career or you do science. Actually, science is the tool that you use to do things. And usually you start with the think about founders. Quite often they've had an experience, something happened to someone in their family, they've been personally affected by something and then they're motivated to go and solve this problem. And the tool that allows them to do that is often these science, engineering, mathematics, they feed into that. It's a toolkit that we have to go and explore things that we care about or that we're passionate about. You don't have to be a scientist. You're going to go and use science. Yeah, look, there, there, are, there are other tools. You know, there's, there's positive visualisation. There's belief in a higher power. But at the end <laughs> of the day, if you want to make a difference in a 10-year time frame, you know, <laughs> and you're rolling dice, science is a good toolkit, isn't it? Megan, let's, let's talk about the, the Kickstart program. You've been there uh, a little while now. Tell our listeners, what, what is Kickstart and, and why is CSIRO doing this in Australia? So the CSIRO Kickstart program is a program for innovative Australian startups and small businesses to help them undertake research and development projects that are going to allow them to grow and boost their business. So the idea being you could be a, we're industry agnostic, so you can be a startup in any sector, any industry. And if you've got a particular scientific or technical challenge that's maybe slowing down your path to market, maybe you don't have the technical expertise in-house to, to solve that problem or it just requires some specialist knowledge, then you could apply to us to undertake a project with CSIRO researchers and then myself or someone in my team would assess the company's eligibility for the program and then we would try and match them with a research capability in the, in the organisation that could deliver that part of the project for them. So if we've got somebody that can help them and that they decide to proceed on a project together, then Kickstart will also co-fund that project. So we provide vouchers up to $50,000 or 50% of the, the project cost to subsidize the work that CSIRO is delivering for the company. So we help them access CSIRO's expertise and facilities, but also we'll provide some funding support to make that more accessible for, in particular, early stage startups and small businesses. So if we classify that as a company that's less than three years old, or if they're more than three years old, their turnover and operating expenses would be less than 1.5 million. So as long as they're an Australian company and fit into either one of those categories, then they would be eligible. We would just need to try and find a research team that could assist them with that, this particular challenge that they're having. Okay, let, let me just roll that back and, and summarize, just make sure I understand. So three years or less, one and a half million dollars turnover or less. So that's an either or? Either or. Yeah. Okay. There's no uh, restriction on having raised capital or having external investors involved? Not a formal requirement other than the company needs to be able to co-fund their 50% of the project. And that is a cash contribution, not an in-kind contribution. So they would need to have some degree of investment in order to be able to support their part of the project. 
Gotcha. So why is uh, CSIRO in the, in the business of, of helping companies commercialize using science? Well, you know, what, what's that about? In particular with the Kickstart program, there are some other schemes out there. CSIRO also facilitates the Innovation Connection Scheme, which is another dollar match funding program for research and development with the entire public research sector. But the companies need to be at least three years old and turning over more than 1.5 million in order to qualify. So um, we sort of looked at what other offerings are out there. And, and when I say we, this predates my time with SME Connect, but we really recognize that there are companies that are less than three years old, maybe they're pre-revenue, but they're still doing really novel research or working on novel products and ideas. And with that investment that they have would benefit greatly from undertaking a collaboration with a research organization. Kickstart is a program that then CSIRO created, recognizing that this gap in the market so it is a CSIRO exclusive program. The companies do need to work with our researchers, but it also feeds into now CSIRO has a broader, it's called the SME Collaboration Initiative. And that's really focused on doubling the number of startups and SMEs that work with publicly funded research organizations. So unis, CSIRO, et cetera, by 2030. So we wanna lead ecosystem change by connecting and amplifying the programs that are out there, but also removing barriers to engagement between industry and the public research sector and understanding the value of those collaborations. So that's really our motivation for developing or supporting these programs is to make this industry research collaboration more effective, more efficient. And we wanna, as I said, double that by 2030. That's awesome. Can you tell us about some of the uh, the successes that you've had, some of the ventures that you're proudest of having worked with? Yeah, I think working with particularly early companies, it's hard to measure the impact because that could be very different depending on where the company comes to you and at what stage. The fact that they survived the first three years of business could be the, the difference that we've made potentially. We've had some really great stories over the years. It's hard to pick. <laughs> so we've worked with, we've just commenced our 200th project through the Kickstart program. So that would be with around 180 or so companies, Australian companies. So that's quite a, quite a few now. We work across all sort of industries and sectors. So we've done, for example, we worked with a company called Australian Plant Proteins, who we've got a few case studies on our website actually of some of the companies we worked with and they developed a, a protein powder from fava beans and they've now got a commercial plant in, in Horsham where they're manufacturing this product. So it's really great to be able to help them early on. They've obviously gone and done a lot of work since then. Now have this no full facility up and running to produce their product. We've worked with companies now that have developed like a, a company called Campow who now are retailing on some big online sellers and yeah I think we're seeing a lot come through in the med tech and biotech sectors as well and also food and agriculture data sciences yeah it's hard to pick some favorites or some key ones to see the companies move forward they often come back and do a second project with us as well so mm -hmm. building that collaboration on a longer ongoing basis as well is a really nice outcome of some of these projects So in the time you've been in the startup ecosystem, what are the changes in that period of time that have really stood out for you? 
So I'd say I'm fairly, still fairly new to the startup ecosystem and I'm learning all sorts of things along the way. But for me, I think our area of expertise, I guess, is the, the research and development. And I, I would have to say in the past couple of years in particular, I was probably somewhat ignorantly expecting our program to maybe slow down because of the effects of COVID, how that affects small business, supply chains, all those sorts of things. But actually, the response has been the complete opposite. We've been busier than we've ever been since the onset of the pandemic. And I think there's this real understanding now that we need innovation. <laughs> innovation is good. It's important. It's going to keep us competitive. It's going to help us solve some of these global challenges, even if we're focusing on a local scale. Like We, we need to be investing and creating and do, doing things differently so that we don't encounter these same problems in the future. And I think there's been this real willingness to engage in research and development, whether it be to take your initial business or business idea and maybe pivot it in a slightly different direction in response to current events or perhaps the day-to-day -day operations of the company were slowed down because of lockdowns. And so you've actually got time to go and do some R&D on maybe an idea that you've had sitting there for a while, but haven't had the opportunity to explore. I feel like there's this appetite to collaborate, to work with expertise, to really explore some new and interesting ideas and to actually, yeah, to innovate. Megan, what do you think we as an industry um, are doing particularly well, you know, unique to Australia or, or perhaps Australia does better? Unique to Australia. That's a that's an interesting question for me. I think I don't have a lot of experience outside of the Australian market, mainly because our focus is purely on working with Australian startups. I think we've got some really interesting focus areas. I'm quite excited about the things I see in like the food and say plant protein spaces and things like this. They're, these are global challenges that we have the capacity to make a significant impact in. I think there's interesting ideas and steps coming out in health and mental health as well, particularly again, acknowledging current events that we know we need to do things differently. And there's obviously the telehealth, there's the interest now in psychedelic assisted therapies and these sorts of things. Perhaps topics that might have felt a little bit taboo or people didn't really talk about. People are talking about these things now and there, there does seem to be a willingness to look outside of standard models and be the first to do something new or to try something new. I think that's a maybe a uh, inherently kind of have a go spirit that, that we have too. And that's, I think that features in some of the trends or, or, or behaviors that we're starting to see. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder if there are industries in Australia, particularly the healthcare industry that are very risk averse because there are very few upsides to taking a risk that pays off. And there are enormous downsides for taking a risk that doesn't pay off, whether you're at the ground level or a health policy leader, still anything that goes wrong, you really get hung, drawn and quartered. But then you throw a global pandemic into the mix and suddenly the baseline level of risk goes from negligible to there's always significant risk in the healthcare system right now. So what can we try that might actually bring that down a bit? I think that's been an interesting development. Absolutely. And yeah, I think some of the 
barriers that might have existed previously have been lowered as well. Like we, we look at, again, at telehealth, for example, that's something that was made available during the pandemic and it looks like now it's here to stay and that's going to make a significant impact in the lives of a lot of people who maybe struggle to have access to a regular GP and whether it be remote or other reasons. These shifts in things that initially were maybe challenging, you'd have to be very committed to want to go down that sort of path and now having more opportunities open up because we know that we need to take new approaches. Cool. Megan, do you have an unpopular opinion about the Australian startup industry? Something that most people wouldn't agree with you about? Oh, an unpopular opinion. I'm not sure if it's unpopular, but I think really this, the coming back to that, the collaboration side of things, that's something that we need to do better and we should be doing better and we can do better. So that's the role that we're trying to play and we believe that there's appetite there for it. It, Maybe it's taken a little bit longer, but I think that we will definitely get there. Cool, cool. More collaboration. The people who think that we're collaborating enough need to dial it up a notch. Yes, I think there's so much opportunity there and hesitancy, again, barriers to making things simpler, easier, streamlining processes. We can all benefit from working with and sharing expertise. The research sector might not necessarily understand how certain things work in industry or with business and vice versa. So the more that we can understand how each other operates, what the um, end goals are, those sorts of things, the better those and more effective and efficient those collaborations are going to be. And that's better for everybody. We're getting science out there, getting these businesses the support through expertise, being able to tap into resources that maybe they thought weren't available to them, but they actually are. That's a, a somewhat common comment I get through Kickstarters that they didn't necessarily um, realise that that was a program that CSIRO offered. I think that lends itself to a lot of opportunity that we can take advantage of. Cool, cool. That's a nice, nice, helpful way of approaching that. I like it. You've you've always been a passionate advocate for women in STEM and for building diversity in all industries and society as a whole. How do you think we've gone over the past five years in, in improving diversity access for women and other underrepresented groups in our industry? Are we making progress? Slowly. I mean, I, I'm I'm optimistic. I think there's still a lot of challenge. There's a, a lot of barriers, and I I can only speak from my personal experience as a woman in the STEM fields. And I don't want to be seen as speaking for any other group and the challenges that they are facing. But I, um, I want to acknowledge that and acknowledge that there's a lot of people that have to work a lot harder than than what they probably should have to to get that recognition to have cultural competency and representation and all these sorts of things. So I know there's a lot of attention, I guess, being paid to this. There's uh, initiatives to try and increase the participation of women and uh, minority groups in STEM. I think these are all really good things. But um, from a personal perspective, I think a lot of this starts way before we get into a school. It starts way before we get into a university or a job environment. This is culture and conversations that we have in the house. You know, small children already identify a scientist, for example, as being a, an older male figure. And, w- and we can impact this, I think, really early on in the just the, the conversations we have, the environments we create in our homes and our communities. You know, I've regularly told the story about a, a toy Barbie doll I had as a, as a child who made comments about 
maths is too hard, let's go shopping, you know, and, and I, I'm playing with this Barbie doll well and truly before I've started school. So there's this subliminal messaging there from a very early age. I'm with Barbie on this one, can I just say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> turns out I quite like maths and I hate shopping, so it didn't get me in the end. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that we can do more, but I, I think it's a very grassroots acknowledging that we have a lot to learn particularly in Australia Australian Indigenous people are the first scientists in this country and they've been living successfully sustainably harmoniously in this country for at least 60,000 years so there are voices there that need to be heard and that we need to learn from and the sooner that's acknowledged and we take positive action towards that, then I think we all stand to benefit from that, particularly from the perspective of an environmental scientist. That's just an absolute given. I love that, Megan. Thank you. That's really good stuff. That's fantastic. We have just one more question. So Megan, if a new aspiring founder comes to you or somebody who's just getting started on their journey in startups, given all of your experience in the past, what one piece of advice would you give them that might help increase their chances of success? Do your homework. You might have a fantastic idea, but I think, and I th I'm thinking about at the stage that companies might come to us to make, to engage on a building that product or ma making that idea a reality. Do you know the market? Do you know that you have customers? Are people interested in what it is that you're wanting to develop or sell or buy? Who are your competitors? I think having this understanding of what your pathway to market's going to be and, and understanding that the environment that you're working is is really important and uh, particularly with very early companies sometimes uh, when they engage with us they, they might not know the answers to those questions yet and I think that you, you really need to have um, an understanding of all of these aspects before taking on a, a you know, a big research and development project because if, if what you're developing doesn't have a customer at the end of it, then maybe you need to reevaluate. So they're things that I would generally look for. And that also comes back to this idea of connection, linking in with people, seeking out advice, talking to others in the ecosystem and community. I think it can be a lonely journey a lot of the time, but there is support out there. There are people that will pick up the phone. And I think the more that we can connect, collaborate, take advantage of each other's various skill sets, then the journey I think will be easier, but I hope more enjoyable as well. I hope you enjoyed that interview. More interviews are on the way. Follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now. Stay tuned for more interviews with many, many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem. Thanks for listening and see you next time.